All right, take your Bible, and if you're not there already, you should be already. Go to Matthew or Mark, I'm sorry, chapter 5, and we're going to pick up there on verse 21 here in a little bit. We'll get to that passage. Terry, you said, and was I sure that I can get through this today? Not really. Honestly, I don't know. I, I had a sermon done last week, then we got behind in the service with VBS, and I skipped it, and so the sermon swelled this week. And uh, I don't know that I'm going to get through it all, but we'll see. I think there's a good place to stop later on. But let me ask this question as we begin today. Uh, And you don't have to answer out loud. You can just think to yourself, what is the scariest passage in the entire Bible? If I asked you that, I wonder what you would think. Uh, Would you think that maybe it's one of the Old Testament passages where God sends his uh, destroying angel into the camp to destroy thousands upon thousands of people for disobedience? Would you think it's a passage where we get glimpses into the supernatural world in the Old Testament and we see things that, uh, that we're not able to see with our natural eyes? Maybe. A lot of people would probably think of the book of Revelation. There's some scary images there, right? Uh, the, the beast. We think of lakes of fire. We think of things like that. There, there are some passages in the Bible that are intimidating. Would you agree with that? But I think without a doubt, I know what is the scariest passage in the entire Bible. I really mean this. I believe that it's found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, 22, and 23. Let me read it for you. Jesus says this. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Listen to this. This is terribly frightening. On that day, many will say to me, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now just think about the implications of this, what Jesus says here. It's terrifying. Really, if you think about it and you think through it honestly and and you just try to think through it objectively, what's Jesus saying here? He's saying that there are going to be many people who arrive at the judgment seat and believe that they're saved. They're going to have gone through their life thinking that they had genuine faith only to find out in the judgment that their faith was counterfeit. That's a frightening thought. To think that you can really possess a a type of faith that's counterfeit. That's not a saving faith. And and, and let me show you a couple of examples. And this is where I say the the sermon swelled a bit, but I think this is worth looking at. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. I'm going to project them up up on the screen behind me. But John chapter 20 or chapter 2 Verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs and wonders he was doing. Many believed in his name. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in the man. Isn't it interesting? It says that they believed in his name, but Jesus looked into their heart 
and would not entrust himself to them because he knew that something about their belief was counterfeit. Acts chapter 8. This one's a long one, so bear with me. Acts chapter 8. Nate, where are you at? Do you still have control? Can you walk us through this one? Because my, my presentation stuff up here is a little messed up. Acts chapter 8, verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously pr- practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. There's so many things I feel like I should say about this passage. I'll just try to give you little pieces along the way and not get lost in the weeds here. But one thing I want you to see here immediately is that it's possible for people to do great signs and wonders and deceive the people of God and any people for that matter. Signs and wonders aren't always evidence of God's work. And we ought to say that in a culture, in a church culture in 21st century America that is becoming obsessed with signs and wonders. So he was doing great things. He was amazing the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was something great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed... As he preached, believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff here that I'm just going to pass by, and you can call me this week, and we'll talk about it. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. So this man believed, and he was even baptized. He continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now here's where I really want us to focus. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Here's another thing. Uh, If you ever turn on your TV and you hear a preacher on the TV telling you that if you'll just send in a a seed or you'll send in some money, and if you do that and plant that seed, God will in turn uh, reward you by pouring out His power on you and pouring out His Spirit. But all you've got to do is just send a gift, send a seed. You ever hear that? I want you to think of this passage of Scripture where Peter said, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. And here it is. For your heart is not right before God. So Simon the magician had come to faith, some type of faith that says he believed and he was baptized and he's following the apostles. But along the way, he does this thing where he offers them money 
And Peter says, your heart is not right with God. Repent, verse 22, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, or pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered rightly, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Now, I take this passage, I think, very clearly to me, not that Simon was just having a momentary lapse, but it seems by what Peter says that Simon's heart was far from God, that he had believed the same way in John chapter 2, they saw these signs and wonders and they believed, but Jesus knew what was going on in their heart. And Simon says, your heart is not right. So this is a scary thought, isn't it? That there are people, there are people who have confessed Jesus as Savior. Some of them have followed Jesus in baptism and are at a time or for a season in their life following the teaching of the apostles. But yet... They're still not saved. It's a frightening thought. What makes it most frightening is that it's possible to fool yourself. A.W. Pink in his book called Studies on Saving Faith said this. Listen to this. Sorry, I have to read a long quote, but just listen to it. It's a good one. He said, it behooves each one of us to make the most diligent and thorough inquiry as to the nature of saving faith. The more so because all faith does not save. Yea, all faith in Christ does not save. I know that sounds strange, doesn't it? I'm going to show you in a little while. There's a Bible passage that says the same thing. Multitudes are deceived upon this vital matter. Thousands of those who sincerely believe that they have received Christ as their personal Savior are resting and are resting on His finished work are building upon a foundation of sand. Vast numbers who have not a doubt but, they have that, but that God has accepted them in the Beloved and are eternally, in, are eternally secure in Christ will only be awakened from their pleasant dreamings when the cold hand of death lays upon them and then it will be too late. Unspeakably solemn is this. Reader, will that be your fate? Others just as sure they were saved as you are are now in hell. I do not think that Pink overstepped. I think he's just echoing what Jesus said. He's echoing what we have in the teachings of the apostles. He's echoing what James said, that some people have real saving faith and some people have a counterfeit faith that won't save. And so the question today for us, which I hope to get through at least half of the answer. The question for us is, what is real saving faith? Or the, the better way, I think, to, to, to say it or to ask the question is, what are some qualities of saving faith that we can measure our own faith against? What are some qualities that help us to see that it's genuine? Now, Mark chapter 5 is a chapter really that's focused on faith. It's a great chapter. In fact, this whole passage, remember, we're in this long day in the life of Jesus and the apostles. And it's really, I think, a place, the more and more I've studied it, where we see a demonstration, Jesus teaching Peter and the other apostles about what faith really looks like. It's interesting to me that 
that we have this passage here where we have this woman with the issue of blood and Jairus and his daughter and his family. We have that wedged, these examples of faith. We have those wedged in between two examples of unbelief. Like, for instance, at the end of chapter 4, we have Peter and the other disciples in the boat with Jesus. Remember, the storm comes up. They plead with Jesus to save their lives. Jesus stands up, rebukes the storm, becomes calm, and he turns to them and he says, why are you so afraid? And what was the question? Have you still no faith? And then when we get to chapter 6 on the other end, so that's the bookend here. The bookend over on the other side is chapter 6 where Jesus, after seeing these two really wonderful examples of saving faith, faith that really works in your life. After seeing these two examples, he returns to his own hometown where the people there reject him. And the Bible says in chapter 6, verse 6, he says he marveled because of their unbelief. So in between the unbelief of the, the, the disciples and the unbelief of the people in his hometown, we have wedged right in the middle this passage about faith and what faith really looks like. So uh, I want us to walk through some of it. There's no way I'm getting through all of it, but I want us to walk through some of it this morning and see the elements or the characteristics of genuine saving faith. And I, I hope that this will be helpful to some of you. I hope it'll be helpful to all of us. Really, I hope it'll speak to all of us. I hope it'll give you renewed confidence in your faith. But particularly, I want to speak to those of you who might be in this room today and you're struggling with your faith. Christians sometimes even struggle with their faith. You know, I feel like some people sometimes become guilty when they're struggling, when they're asking the question, when they're looking in the mirror and they're saying to themselves or even to God or someone else, I'm not sure about my faith. I'm, I thought I'd be further along than this. I thought I'd be doing better than this. I had a really bad day. I fell on my face again. I'm not sure about my faith. And so I want you to see here that there's some hope when we understand the real qualities of saving faith. I'm going to move fast. Maybe I can get through it. I don't think I can. But let's, let's look at it. The first thing, the first thing I want you to see is that genuine saving faith is completely dependent on Jesus. It's 100%. This woman had been living, let's focus on her for just a little bit. This woman has been living in her life with this terrible problem. It says that she has a, had a discharge of blood. Now, I think that we can read between the lines here, right? I think all of us understand that this woman's dealing with a feminine problem. We know that it's a persistent problem. It's been going on for 12 years, 12 years. She's been dealing with this. Think of that. How many of you have been going through something lately for a week or for a month or for a year? Twelve years. She's been dealing with this problem. Verse 26 makes it clear that she had pursued every possible remedy, but nothing she could do and nothing that anyone else could do could ever take away the discharge of blood. She had no ability to solve this problem. Think of this. No ability, no doctor could solve her problem. No priest had the ability to solve her problem. Her only hope, her only hope is in verse 27. Verse 27, she had heard the reports about Jesus. Her only hope is Jesus. The first element in this person, and by the way, by the way, uh, I was studying last week and I ran across someone who said, 
you know, these, this woman particularly is not really a picture of faith. She's a picture of desperation. Uh, she tried everything she could, and, and she just figured, why not try Jesus? You know? I don't want to agree with that. I'll tell you why. I believe this woman was a woman of faith, and why what we're dealing with here is saving faith is because in verse 34, Jesus addresses her. He says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Not your desperation, your faith. Your faith has made you well. So she had come with genuine faith, knowing that Jesus was her only hope. And Jairus is the same. His daughter is dying. There's nothing he can do. He can't get any help from a doctor. He can't get any help from a priest. He can't get any help from his family and friends. He has only one hope. So verse 22, it says that he came, that there came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, that's Jesus, he fell at his feet. Jairus fell at the feet of Jesus because Jesus was his only hope. Genuine saving faith is completely dependent on Jesus. 100% dependent on Jesus. Listen to what I'm about to say because this is the most important thing I can say to you when it comes to the issue of saving faith. We, we all, all of us, have a deadly problem. Sin. We're all sinners and none of us can do anything to resolve that problem. You don't have the ability. You could work for 10,000 years, 10 million years, 10 trillion years. Do all the good you can do and it won't pay the debt you owe. You can't do it. You can't save yourself. I can't intercede for you. There's no priest. There's no uh, person. There's no intercessor other than Jesus Christ. Our only hope to, be, to, to, be, uh, to have a remedy for our sins is in Jesus Christ. Our faith has to be completely dependent on Jesus. Otherwise, let me tell you this. If you're working for your own salvation, you'll end up worse off than when you started just like this lady. You can't do it. So genuine faith is always completely dependent on Jesus. He saves us from the wrath of God, not our works, not our religion, nothing. Next, and I think that this sort of is the other side of the coin here. And this, if you think, if you're a member of Burntwood's church, or you've been here a long time, you've heard me preach a lot, you think this is one of my hobby horses, it is. It really is. I'm not trying to deny that. But genuine saving faith is evident in our actions. It is seen in our actions. Look back at, at verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. So, so listen, just take that one sentence and take it apart in pieces. She had heard the reports about Jesus. She heard. Faith comes by hearing. She had faith, and what did she do? She went into action, right? Her faith was seen in her action. She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. That's a big deal. Big deal. This is a big deal. In our 21st century minds, it's not that big of a deal. But in a first century Jewish culture, this is a big deal. Because the Bible tells us in Leviticus chapter 15 that this woman was living in a state where she's perpetually unclean. She's unclean for 12 
years. And remember, I think I said this two weeks ago when we dealt with the Gadarene demoniac, that, that to be unclean in a Jewish culture, in Jewish mind, to be declared unclean is the worst thing that can happen to you. So this woman, she's unclean for 12 years, and, and because of her state of being unclean, she would have been unable to participate in normal life. Unable to participate. Just think about it. She couldn't go into the temple for worship. She couldn't participate in worship in, the, uh, in, in, uh, in Israel. She couldn't marry. She was unclean. She couldn't touch another person. Think of this. How many of you during 2020 started to long, long to touch someone, to give a hug, to handshake, you know? Imagine 12 years, you can't touch someone. She's unable, I mean, according to Leviticus 15, she can't even sit on your couch without you becoming unclean. Just think of the horror of what it must have been like. So so get this, touching Jesus is a no-no. She's not allowed to touch Jesus. She's not allowed to be in the crowd. She's not allowed to be rubbing shoulders with other people. What, but what led her to take such drastic action? What was it? It's her faith. Her faith puts her into action. Here's another thing. I don't have time uh, to, to talk about this morning, but let me plant the seed and maybe you'll think about it, study it this week. But I think it's interesting that she does all these things that are forbidden by the law, and yet Jesus doesn't condemn her. Is that interesting to you? I think I think it's because the law was meant to point to Jesus. Not to keep us from Jesus. It's meant to point us to Jesus. And so she comes to Jesus, and it's as if he says the all of these things have served their purpose. You're here with me. It looks pissed. I think that's an incredible example of his grace, of his love. But Jairus himself also is another example of faith in action. He leaves the bedside. How many of you, if your child was dying at the point of death, how many of you would get up and leave for any reason? Just think about that. But what led him was faith, belief that Jesus could heal her. So he got up, his faith put him into action. I heard John MacArthur say something years ago that's always stuck with me. I probably don't say it exactly how I heard him say it, uh, but I heard him say, you don't have to tell me what you believe. I can look at what you do and tell you what you believe. Your faith in action is your faith in action. Genuine saving faith is always evident in our actions. By the way, this is the passage of Scripture I said earlier that I was going to lead you to that says the same thing that Arthur Pink said, James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17, where James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So if somebody claims to have faith, they're professing faith, but the evidence in their life, the works in their life, the actions of their life doesn't line up with what they're saying. It says, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? In other words, if your actions don't follow the words of your mouth, what good are the words of your mouth? If you claim to be a Christian, just listen to what I'm about to say to you. Don't say it at you. I say it to myself, 
If you're claiming to be a follower of Jesus, but yet the actions of your life don't give any evidence that you're following Jesus, then what good is your claim to follow Jesus? Your actions must follow. Genuine saving faith never operates in disguise. Never. It's always showing up, showing off, showing out, however you want to see it, in our actions. It's always there in our actions. So genuine saving faith is evident in our actions. So just go down the checklist so far in your own life. Genuine saving faith. Are you completely dependent on Jesus? I mean, are you solely depending on Jesus for your salvation? And are your works following your confession? Is this the evidence? We could spend a lot of time here. Ephesians 2. You were saved by grace, not by works, lest any man should boast. Right? So you're saved by grace through faith in Christ. But at the end of the passage, Paul says that you were saved for good works. So you can't just say, I'm saved. Jesus saved me. Does that have anything to do with me? I'm not working for it. I'm not going to work for it. I don't want to get... There are people who think if I do good works to evidence my faith, then I'll be trampling on God's grace because I just need to get out of the way. Let Him save me. No, 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 no. If you're saved, you won't be able to help it. It will show up in your life. You won't be able to help it. All right, I'm going to move on. That is my hobby horse. My, because it's the, the big thing. Like I've been in ministry now for almost two decades. This is the big thing that concerns me, is that so many people so casually call on the name of Christ, but show almost no evidence of the saving work of Christ in their life. And so that leads me to believe that what Jesus said is so immensely practical for us that many will say to him, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you. You have to take stock. All right, I'm going to get through it. I'm going to do it. All right. Number three. Genuine saving faith always perseveres. This is my favorite of the three this morning. I thought this would be another sermon. It might still be. I might just expand on this next week. Look at verse 35. So now let's, for a moment, just focus on Jairus. And they're on their way. And so there's been this intermission, so to speak. So the lady has come, interrupted. Doesn't seem to have taken long, but probably takes longer than it appears in the text. And now they're turning to go. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And what are they saying? Like, Ask yourself, what are they saying when they say it? I mean, have they come just to offer information, just to help Jairus? Have they come because... They're genuinely concerned that Jesus may be inconvenienced. Is that what's going on here? Or is there something else going on here? I think there's something else going on here. I think what's going on is that these people come to Jesus and, or to Jairus, and they're saying to Jairus, let it go. Give up. Quit. 
Just give up. There's nothing that can be done. You did what you could do. You did your best. You went to Jesus. It didn't work out. So give up. And what does Jesus say in verse 36? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Believe. Have faith. Trust me. He's saying the opposite of what they've said. They say, Give up. What does Jesus say? Don't give up. Don't give up. Keep believing. Keep persevering. Listen, church, listen. I know it's 12 o'clock. I know that's when a lot of people think Holy Spirit goes to lunch, you know? (laughs) He's still here. Listen, listen, this is important. Really, really important. Jesus is saying, keep persevering. Keep walking with me. Keep Stay on this road with me, even though it seems to be in vain. Stay with me. Don't give up. Don't give up. Genuine saving faith always perseveres. It always perseveres. Look, there may be times, and I'd be lying to you. I'm not going to stand in the pulpit and lie to you. I'd be lying if, if I said there were never moments when I didn't think to myself, you are such a fraud. You don't honor Christ in your life. You didn't do good today. You should just give up. And in the next breath, I say to myself, no, I'm not giving up. I'm going to persevere because he's going to finish what he started in me. I had a bad day today, but I'm persevering. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and still believe in Jesus, still follow Jesus. Genuine faith always perseveres. I uh, the, the 1689 Baptist Confession, which is a beautiful confession, says this about the perseverance of the saints. It says, Those whom God hath accepted in the Beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given the precious faith of His elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. You can't fall away. You can't fall away. Persevere. Persevere. Don't give up. Stick with Jesus. I don't know how else to say it. Just don't give up. How many of you have been watching the Olympics? That's about right, according to the ratings reports. (laughs) Nobody watches the Olympics. Do you remember when it was a big deal? I used to love to watch the Olympics when I was a kid. Me and my older brother Greg would just camp in front of the TV and watch everything. I haven't been watching either. But I I was thinking this week, you know, I've been catching clips. I haven't been watching in the evenings, but I've been catching these clips of what I used to think was the most boring of all Olympic uh, events, which is track and field. Sorry if you love it, but I just never, other than pole vaulting, I just think, you know, and that's probably because you're just waiting for a wreck, you know, like, but... But this year, I've been watching, watching with some particular interest. I don't know why. These clips, they, they show up in, in, uh, on YouTube sometimes and of the track and field events, and particularly the, the runners and the relays and things like that. And I was thinking to myself, like, oh, to be able to run like that. Like, I, 
I obviously can't run like that, but I've never been able to run like that. I've never liked to run like that. Even when I was in the Marines, I didn't want to run. I, I hated to run. And I always thought the only reason anybody should run is if something was chasing you and was going to kill you, you know, like there's no reason otherwise to run. And, uh, but, but anyway, I, I love, I do love to see these athletes like at the top of their game. So I thought about this. We talk about the perseverance of saints. Suppose you took a hundred people and there were some that are like some of you who run marathons and things like that. And so you've got some people who are in shape enough to do that, and then you've got some people who really train and, and they work hard. And then you've got some people like me who don't run. And just put them in this group, 100 people, 99 of them are, are like that, and then there's one Olympic marathon runner in that group. And you fire the pistol, and they go. It's going to be pretty evident early on for the people like me. Right? I could maybe make it a quarter mile. I'm out. That's it. Done. Fall away. And then there'll be others who make it further. There'll be others who make it to the finish line, even. But the one who will win, without a doubt, the one who will persevere, will be that Olympic athlete. He'll come in, he'll cross the finish line having persevered. How, how will we eventually know from the time that we fire the pistol to the time we're standing at the finish line, how will we know who was the real deal? They will have run the race. They will finish the task. And they'll have crossed the finish line. They will have persevered. They will have won the crown. That's perseverance. That's the biblical doctrine of perseverance. Take a hundred people in this room. I pray to God and I prayed for you this week. I mean it. I pray that all of us know Jesus as Savior. Everyone. But in the end, you know how we'll know? Because in the end, the one who perseveres will be the one who has genuine faith. Well, no. And this is, I think, the daily measure of saving faith. Keep believing. You know what I mean? People come to me and they say, Pastor, I'm, I'm almost done. Just listen. Pastor, I don't know if I'm saved. Oh, it's so heartbreaking when I hear it. And I hear this. I don't know if I'm saved. I've done this thing. and I have these doubts. I just don't know. I'm just not sure. So I say, well, you know, I share the gospel. Do you know that God is holy? Do you know that you're a sinner? And that God sent His own Son to live and die for you? Have you believed in Jesus and and almost always, not always, but almost always, they'll say, I believe, I believe. I talked to someone just last week, had this very conversation with. They say, I believe. Do you know what my advice is? Keep persevering. Keep believing. Let Him do His work in you, but don't ever give up.
So if you believe in Jesus today, if you're persevering today, that's the greatest evidence that you can have. Genuine faith, saving faith. Gary, you can come on up if you're out there. Genuine saving faith is always completely dependent on Jesus. Always evident in our actions. And always persevering.